Praise the Lord for a beautiful song and the hope that's embodied in that song. I do want to say to you before I uh, share with you this morning that uh, in my pocket here are the keys to the buildings next door. Can you say amen? And I want to encourage you, God has blessed us, and by God's grace, the next chapters will be just as blessed as this one. We do plan to have an open house where people can come by and see the properties, and may God bless us as we continue to the end of the year. We need to have a strong finish financially, and uh, we are in a position to where any funds received here forward will go for the buildings and the ministries that will operate out of them. So praise the Lord for that. I'm rejoicing, and I'm thankful to God and in partnership with all of you. Let's pray. Lord, as we try to comprehend what you've done for us, I pray expand our hearts, our minds, and our devotion to you. Bless us now as we revisit the city of Bethlehem, the incarnation of your Son. Now, Lord, we put our lives in your hands and pray for teaching and for touching. In Jesus' name, amen. One person said it's impossible to be too big for God to use. It is possible to be too big for God to use, but never too small. And John Bunyan, writing in Pilgrim's Progress, would say this, He that is down need fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. Now, it's impossible for human beings to be humble on their own. It's impossible for us in our position of insecurity, now devalued by the operating system of sin, to really even feel good about ourselves. So what must happen is a divine transaction must be made that places new value on us because through the deceits of Satan and the choices of our ancestors, we became less than God ever intended anybody or anything should ever be. Naturally, we're leaky vessels. We lose our sense of value. That's why it's so important that a church is full of edification, that we learn to love, and we practice that love at home, and we practice it at church. It's imperative that we pass out words of affection and encouragement, so that when we had to have those moments when we don't necessarily see eye to eye or something's wrong, that there's a sense of our value and worth, and our mistake does not diminish us to the point of not being able to hear. I want to talk with you this morning about two subjects that are very large, very difficult to embrace. One is the humility that is the essence of God and the condescension of Jesus to become a baby. Now, it's imperative that we understand that real greatness is connected to the reflection of God's character. I think about some of the stories of great people that have gone before us. William Carey was the father of all foreign missions. In his early days, he had been a, a shoe repairman. And in the process, God had done something with him, small in his own eyes. Eventually, he was a man that was greatly honored 
He became Dr. Carey. And in the process of it all, the Society of English Nobility would honor him, the father of missions. He was once at a state dinner given an honor of God's work in his life, but there was an English officer there that was jealous and negative. And he leaned over and said to one of the other guests, the host of the meeting, he said, wasn't your great Dr. Carey once just a shoemaker? Well, William Carey heard what he said. And before the host could reply, he said, no, sir, I was not that skilled. I was just a cobbler. I want you to know it's natural in the human heart to gather to ourselves some things true, some things false that attempt to make us feel better about ourselves. This morning, when you walk out of this place, what I want you to know is that you are the pearl of great price. Jesus did not consider heaven a place to be if you were not there. And he poured all of eternity into the redemption effort to bring you home. Now, connected to these things is an amazing story from someone that I know that lives in this community. Bill Greenlee is his name. And years ago, when Chuck Yeager was still alive, this is the man who, in October of 1947, broke the sound barrier for the first time. He was flying a Bell X-1 they called the Glamorous Glenis. He was on his ninth try. They took that bullet-shaped airplane. They had, they had studied the, the conditions, the aerodynamics of high-velocity bullets, and they had tried to design the airplane just that way. And they carried that airplane up on an Air Force bomber to 20,000 feet. They dropped it into the air. Its rocket booster kicked in. It went up to 42,000 feet. And there, as they were approaching the speed of sound, the plane before had shuddered and shaken. They had made the ability for slight adjustments on one of the wings. And this time, Jaeger took that airplane up to 700 miles an hour, or just over Mach 1. Later, when he was at the International Air Show in Oshkosh, he, was, he, he had a goal. It just turned out that Bill Greenlee and he had the same goal. Jaeger, who was now an old man, was riding around in a golf cart. Greenlee, who was walking across the campus, both noticed the same thing. Now, this is one of our fellow Seventh-day Adventists, a pilot here who attends the Stevensville Church. He said, I was walking towards the same piece of trash that Chuck Yeager had noticed was blowing around on the campus of the International Air Show. But he was in a golf cart, and he beat me there. But that day, because I was after a piece of trash, just picking up a piece of trash, I met the first man to ever break the sound barrier. You see, humility and lowliness of person is the only greatness that heaven recognizes. Satan in heaven had hated Christ, Ellen White would write in The Desire of Ages. He hated him for his position in the courts of God. Second hate, he hated him the more when he himself, that is Lucifer, was dethroned. Third hate, he hated him who pledged himself to redeem a race of sinners. <laughs> Listen, you can't get a more explicit trifecta of hate than three hatreds 
And the world's unfallen are watching all of this. Writing also in the Desire of Ages, she states, with intense interest, the unfallen worlds had watched to see Jehovah arise and sweep the inhabitants of earth away. And if God should do this, Satan was ready to carry out his plan for securing to himself the allegiance of heavenly beings. Yes, it had been quite a coup that Satan had tried to arrange, quite an overthrow of God's kingdom. Deceive Eve, tempt Adam, and then declare forgiveness was impossible. And that's what she writes. He had declared that the principle of God's give government made forgiveness impossible. And had the world been destroyed, he would have claimed that his accusations were proven true. He was ready to cast blame upon God and to spread his rebellion to worlds above. Now, I want you to understand what had happened. Satan, as a free moral agent, had decided that God had not given him enough. Satan had taken his eyes off the law of the universe, which is to live to give, and he had placed his eyes upon himself, the closest and highest ranking angel, closest to God, the covering cherub. And somehow in the midst of his confusion about his estate in the, in the rank of heaven, he began to see God through a different set of glasses. It eventually came to the place where he couldn't even know who God really was, but he was certain in his own mind that God had mistreated him. God appealed to him. There was an effort to redeem him. There was an offer of forgiveness. He refused. He went forward with his plan, told the angels that had followed him that forgiveness was impossible. And now with the same lie, he is attempting to confuse all of the unfallen citizenry of the cosmos. And he thought he had God in checkmate. God's design was flawed. It was wrong. Sin is God's fault, and forgiveness is impossible. What he didn't understand was that in heaven, the lowliness in the heart of God exceeded the ability of Lucifer to see, and Jesus was willing to pay the price of the choices of the human beings that had chosen wrong. The law was perfect. Its design was perfect. And now what was needed was a perfect sacrifice to pay the price. How bad was it on planet Earth just before Jesus arrived? Writing in the Desire of Ages, page 36, the author states, All the agencies for depriving the souls of men had been put in operation. I want you to think about it. All the agencies for depraving the souls of men had been put in operation. The Son of God, looking upon the world, beheld the suffering and the misery. With pity, he saw how men had become victims of satanic cruelty. He looked with compassion upon those who were being corrupted, murdered, and lost. They had chosen a ruler who had chained them to his wagon as captives, and bewildered and deceived, they were moving on in gloomy procession towards eternal ruin, to death in which there is no hope of life, towards night to which there comes no morning. Yes, it was a bleak time in the world's history. It was 
one of the darkest moments. And yet, God had a church. And God had made a promise. And God's prophecies were about to come true. So why could the church not be prepared to receive heaven's offering? This question is answered well in the Desire of Ages. It says, The priests and the teachers of the nation knew not that the greatest event of the ages was about to take place. Friends, that's ignorance. It's blindness. They rehearsed their meaningless prayers and performed the rites of worship to be seen by men. But, here's the diagnosis. In their strife for riches and worldly honor... They were not prepared for the revelation of the Messiah. The same indifference pervaded all of the rest of the inhabitants of Israel. Hearts selfish and worldly engrossed were untouched by the joy that thrilled all of heaven. Only a few were longing to behold the unseen. And to these, heaven's embassy was sent. Now, let's think about the diagnosis for just a minute. If they were blinded and ignorant and uninterested because of strife for riches and worldly honor, I think the question we have to ask ourselves, is this a peculiarly, peculiarly Judaic problem or is it a human problem? And is it a cyclical repeating dynamic of the human race? And is it possible that right at this very moment, a love for worldly honor and a strife for riches could make us as unprepared to receive the king coming back again as it made them to receive Jesus meek and mild as the Messiah. Is it possible that hearts selfish and world engrossed could still be untouched by the greatest story ever told and that only a few are longing to see Jesus again? Listen. It's so easy to look back and say, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be like the nation of Israel. The problem is, is that our humanity is their humanity, and the devil's uh, playbook for deception and distraction hasn't changed. And in every age, there's still this interest in the best the world can provide. At the very crisis, she goes on to write, when Satan seemed about to triumph, the Son of God came with the embassage of divine grace. It would have been almost infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take man's nature, even when Adam stood in his innocence in Eden. But Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened for, by 4,000 years of sin. And like every child of Adam, he accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity. And what these results were is shown in the history of his earthly ancestors. He came with such a heredity to share our sorrows and temptations and to give us the example of a sinless life. Take your Bibles and open them, if you would, to Luke chapter 2, the story of Jesus in the manger, the sovereign sign, majesty in the manger. It's hard to imagine that so much focus could be misdirected and so lack of readiness could be the experience of God's people. In Luke chapter 2, verse 7, the narrative of Luke, the doctor writing to the Greeks, says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes 
And she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I just happen to believe that the scriptures have multiple layers of amazement in them that it would be hard for someone to prove, but not hard for someone to accept that God is behind the writing of this book. And when you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 7, you see two words that are almost never used in the Bible. One is swaddling, and the other is manger. Each of these words are only used four times in all of the Old and the New Testament. And the interesting thing about these words is that the place that they're used is in Luke chapter 2, and in Job chapter 38 and 39. Now there is one use of the word swaddling in the book of Ezekiel. However, when Ezekiel uses the word, he basically says that when you were born, you laid there in the blood of the process and no one gave you swaddling. But for any place where the word swaddling is used, which is only four places, in Luke chapter 2, in Job chapter 38, verse 9, and in Ezekiel chapter 16. But in Job 38 and in Luke 2, we find the use of this word swaddling. Now, when it comes to the dynamic of the word manger, it's the same thing. It's used three times here in the book of Luke and once in the book of Job. What makes Job 38 and 39 so unique is that in Job chapter 38, God says he uses darkness like swaddling around the waters in the creation of the world. And then in Job chapter 39, God says, will the wild ox come and lay down by your manger? Job 38 is where God takes the inanimate things of the world, like the creation, the water, the sunrise, the sunset, and he says to Job, where were you? And Job 39 is where God takes the animals and their experience that he created. And he says, will any of these animals obey you like this? So it's very interesting that the creator God, the one who spoke all of these things into existence, will reserve in Holy Scripture for the use of the word manger and swaddling the experience of of the creator God, whom by whom all things were made and nothing was made that was made without him. Jesus, who was the word. He is the one who actually made that wild ox. He is the one who actually controlled the boundaries of where the water can go with the swaddling of darkness. And to take Job 38 and 39, which describe in exquisiteness in the Old Testament, not the creation story from Genesis, but perhaps the best expression of God's creative ability elsewhere in the Old Testament, to take Job 38 and the creator of all these things in Luke 2 and bring them together is an amazing coming together of sublime thought at the incarnation of God. Yes, Mary had a baby. There was no room for her. There was no room for him. Weary and homeless, desire of ages, they traversed the length of the narrow street, the entire length, from the gate of the city to the eastern extremity of the town. 
They vainly seek a resting place for the night. There's no room for them at the crowded inn. So in a rude building where the beasts are sheltered, they at last find refuge. And here the Redeemer of the world is born. Now, at the end of every day, most of us get to go home and many of us feel a measure of weariness. But imagine being a cosmic refugee. You are Jesus, the creator of all things. You spoke the entire world into existence. You spoke the entire universe into existence. And now you're coming down to redeem the race, but they don't want you. And by satanic choreography, by satanic arrangement, when you come home to the king city, the King David city, nobody will make a place for you. Now, I turned on the news the other morning while I was preparing breakfast for my wife and I, and I was stunned to look at the refugee crisis that's going on in Gaza. And without going into the politics and hatred of the battle that's going on there, it made me startled, saddened, to see a woman, great with child, being taken out of the back of an ambulance the floodwaters, it had rained so much, the floodwaters were almost up to the waist of the rescuer. And here is a man extricating a pregnant woman from the back of an ambulance. And then they showed pictures of people just draped under cloth. And they're hungry and they're cold. And while war creates these kinds of situations, let us not for a moment think that Jesus was not dropped into the middle of a war zone where right from the very beginning, Satan had him in his crosshairs and wanted to make the life of all those associated with his ministry as miserable as possible. Now, I want to talk to you for a minute about homelessness and the status of refugees. Look in the front of the pew in front of you. There's a tithe envelope there. Get it out if you would. Take out that tithe envelope. I want everybody to look at this. As a matter of fact, I'm going to come down and get one. We don't talk about refugees very often, but this morning, I do want to talk with you about it. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has a number of ministries, or they have an intense interest in ministering to those who come to this country without knowing exactly how things are going to work out. And I want you to see as you open that up that inside that tithe envelope, the largest segment says a Michigan conference. And the very first line says MAP, which stands for Michigan Advanced Partners. Now, I can be sad about watching refugees who no longer have homes, and I can feel a momentary sense of empathy for people, or I can actually do something about it. And this morning, I decided in this service, I'm going to challenge you to actually do something about it. Now, when this tithe envelope is broken into three places, local church, Michigan conference, and world church, there is a plan behind it. Seventh-day Adventists are the most systematic, generous, benevolent people, I believe, by organizational relationship on the face of the planet. From the very beginning... Seventh-day Adventists determined that systematic benevolence or generosity would mark what they do. And the first segment, the, the segment for the local church, 
We encourage people to return 5 to 6% of their income to the local church. And I want to encourage you as we come to the end of the year, be faithful in returning a combined budget offering. Not so that lights can be shining while the service is on, but so that our mission can go forward with vitality and vigor. The second segment is Michigan Conference. And we encourage that people return 1% of their gross income to the Michigan Conference. Now, I can tell you every summer, just one expression of how this works, every summer as we get ready to do Christian education, we get applications for people who need money to go to school. And I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, in some segments in Western societies, the church is dying. I'm also here to tell you that in non-Western society, where they're not racked with the diseases of materialism, the church is still growing. But in many of those places, there's great hardship. And people are expelled from their country by their convictions and their desires to live out their faith, to live out a sense of freedom. And I want you to know that every single one of our schools could be full to overflowing with students if this was actually funded by every member of the church. We take in about one-fourth of what we're capable of taking in as a people. You know what that means? That means a student that comes from whatever trauma, out of a refugee camp, out of a place far away, when they come to this country, instead of being nurtured as they learn a new language inside the, the beautiful cocoon of a church school with a godly church teacher, with brother, young brothers and sisters in the faith, other pupils, they're thrust into the arena of the public schools, which are I could safely say a major wasteland of values and certainly a prime spot for pumping the self-interest that drives our culture. We're getting about 25% as a denomination into these kinds of offerings. And I'm here to tell you there are dozens and dozens, yea, hundreds of refugee children who because their parents come and get entry-level jobs are stuck going to the public school. Now, you want to do something about it? I'm encouraging you, don't rob Peter to pay Paul. As we come to the end of this world, we're going to face all kinds of financial challenges. And I'm very proud of this church and our online brothers and sisters for how we've rallied to commit ourselves to a project that will also care for the poor and the displaced through our medical and information, our teaching and healing ministries. But we are so far underfunded here. Anybody watching me online, anybody listening to me here today, I'm appealing to you to join me in systematically returning 1% of your offering to the Michigan Advanced Partners, and we can do more than just lament what it's to be a refugee. We can make a difference for refugee children that could be in a Christian environment five days out of the week, seven hours a day, and blessed in the security of their church family instead of thrown, as it were, to the cultural lions in our public school system. Yes, I saw it on the news. It bothered me. I don't want our church to lament what's wrong without doing something to make it right. But you need to know 
Mary and Joseph were weary and homeless. Jesus was born as a cosmic refugee. The creator of the entire universe had no place to call home. But the wild ox that Job could not command to lay down near his manger was related to the ox that was probably in the stall whose manger Jesus as a baby was laid in. Yes, this is the great creator of the universe. He came unto his own and his own received him not. It is a tremendous tragedy. In the fields where the boy David had led his flock, shepherds were still keeping watch by night. Through the silent hours, they talked together of the promised Savior. They prayed for the coming of the king to David's throne. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be unto all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. At these words, the visions of glory fill the minds of the listening shepherds, and they're all wrong. They're all wrong. Palace, temple, wealth, honor, power. The deliverer has come to Israel. Triumph, exaltation are associated with his coming. But the angel must prepare them to recognize their Savior under different circumstances. Poverty and humiliation. This shall be the sign unto you, he says. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now I want us to think about this for a minute. One of the songs that we sing at Christmas time talks about the silent word pleading. That's Jesus. That is the one who said, let there be light. And there was light. That is one who divided the firmament above from the firmament beneath. That is the one who declared where night and day were to find their delineation. That is the one who spoke and the air was filled with birds and the sea with fish. That is the one who bent down over the dust of the earth and formed Adam and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living being. That's who that baby is laying in a manger. The smell of the stall, the dampness of the evening, the darkness of the room. This is Jesus. By the way, poverty is a chapter of education that those who have experienced tend to be a much higher class of humble, beautiful people than those who have not. And most of the children listening to me in this hall today and many online will never have known what poverty is. So you have a job, parents. Your job is to take your kids to where poverty exists and expose them to it so that their heart can go out in compassion instead of the smug self-centeredness that the marketing gurus of this world would like to do as they make your child the ultimate customer king and the ruination of their lives. Yes, our children need to be in the places where they see the sunken cheeks and the missing teeth, and they need to look into the eyes of hopelessness. They need to be at the homeless shelter helping serve food. When they walk down the streets on the way to these wonderful symphonies with the rot of society circling the downtown areas of these great behemoth cities we have, Yes, probably those are not the worthy poor, but the last thing a parent would want to do is make the mistake of hardening a child's heart to the brokenness and the depravity of this world. 
Yes, poverty itself is an amazing teacher. And when you look at the generation, the, 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 the oldest generation in American society right now, in the world, many of them in their early days knew what it was like to be poor. And they are, as Tom Brokaw, Brokaw would write, they are those few that remain in the, in the next little group after them. They are the greatest generation. They've been poor. Many of them went on to be wealthy. And in the midst of their wealth, they, because they've been poor, are generous. And what we see in the demographics of our world today is that the generations that have never been poor are not generous. And it's a sad thing. The story of Bethlehem is an exhaustless theme. And it is hit in the depths of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. We marvel at the Savior's sacrifice in exchanging the throne of heaven for the manger and the companionship of adoring angels for the beast of the stall. The beast of the stall were chosen as the immediate surrounding, as the immediate companions of the Creator. Human pride and self-sufficiency stand rebuked in His presence. Yet this was just the beginning of His wonderful condescension. You have a big education. You have a big income. You live in a big country. You have a big responsibility and you have a big temptation. The big temptation is to fall into the concept that you earned it and you deserve it. The big temptation is to allow your heart to be slowly locked down in self-interest. God sent his son to save the world, not to destroy it. Though corruption and defiance might be seen in every part of this alien province, that's the earth, a way for its recovery was provided at the very crisis when Satan seemed about to triumph. In other words, he had the human race in a full Nelson headlock. The Son of God came with the embassage of divine grace. And when the fullness of time had come, the deity was glorified by pouring upon the world a flood of healing grace that was never to be obstructed or withdrawn until the plan of salvation should be fulfilled. You know what that means? That means the flood of healing grace is still flowing. How sad would it be if when it flows through the portal of the village Seventh-day Adventist church or any Seventh-day Adventist church, it should get choked down and shut off. The truth be told, our homes should be like churches. Our church should be agencies of healing. And the world should sense that the fountain that's in our heart collected together is flowing to bless all mankind in humility and service just as Jesus came in the same way. Heaven and earth are no wider apart today than when the shepherds listened to the angels' song, Glory, Hallelujah. Humanity is still as much the object of heaven's solicitude as when common men of common occupations met angels at noonday and talked with heavenly messengers in the vineyards and the fields. To us, in the common walks of life, heaven may be very near. Angels from the courts above will attend the steps of those who come and go at God's command. And yet into a world where Satan claimed dominion, God permitted his son to come, a helpless babe, subject to the weaknesses of humanity. He permitted him to meet life's peril in common with every human soul, to fight the battle of every child of humanity must fight at the risk of failure and eternal loss. The heart of a human father yearns over his son, 
He looks into the face of his little child and he trembles at the thought of life's perils. He longs to shield his dear one from Satan's power, to hold him back from temptation and conflict, to meet a bitterer conflict and a more fearful risk. God gave his only begotten son that the path of life might be made sure for our little ones. Here in his love, wonder, O heavens, and be astonished, O earth. Yes, friends, I tell you, the sovereign sign that God was fit to be ruler of the universe, fit to live on the throne of our heart, fit to give guidance to our churches and our families is the fact that he was willing to abandon the ivory palaces and lay next to the beast of the stall. His majesty was in the manger. And our majesty, which is honor to him and awareness to the world, is in the same mindset. We must live to give. No place. Just like in the book Hind's Feet on high places, the sound of the waterfall as it goes is lower still, lower still, lower still. Humility is a mark of the Godhead. It is the beginning perhaps of all other virtues. And this morning I'm calling you. I'm appealing to you. Do not let strife for riches and worldly honor absorb and control. Most people will never admit that any of that's going on in their lives. I challenge you. Take a thoughtful, quiet hour in the dark of the morning or the dark of the evening and think about what it must have been like to be in that rude building, no lights, a tired, exhausted mother who's wrapped her baby in swaddling clothes and instead of holding him has laid him in a manger which she recovers probably on a pile of hay. There's the father trying to tend to the needs of both. The oxen are lowing. Eventually, there's a group of men who smell like sheep who arrive in the door of that barn. Babies aren't supposed to be in barns. The king of the universe, let alone the king of the world, shouldn't be here. But that was the sign. There he is. And they kneel down around a manger, manger and devote their life to the one who will pay the price for their sins. Satan was wrong. God was not checkmated. God was committed to paying the price as the creator of all the creation. And we're celebrating that today. We are called to the same lowliness of heart. No job in this church is too low for anyone to do. No job anywhere. We're to be the most beautiful, humble, serving people on the face of the planet. And people will take note that we're not like other ordinary human beings. We're not caught up in the strife for riches and honor. Our lives are devoted to the message going out. Yes, the majesty, my friends, is in the manger. Let's stand as we sing about it.